0: Welcome to another episode of the Golders podcast. If you haven't already, click subscribe and look out for new episodes releasing every other Friday. We hope everybody also enjoyed our last episode with Leo Neal. Before we introduce today's guest, we do want to mention our partnership with clothing company Capo. The meaning behind the brand runs much deeper. The northwest of England clothing brand strives to provide premium aesthetic fitting and quality clothing at affordable prices. Check out their products at www.capouk.com and on Instagram at capo-uk. Now, for today's guest, here is a snippet of what to expect.
1: Without understanding the psych social of individuals, I don't think you can coach anyone. You can know a lot, but you have to affect people as people. So. It's important. I mean, unfortunately, I've got 10 nieces so, of different ages so uh, and nephews. And so I try to see what they're watching, what they're doing, how they're doing, how do I communicate with them? So I've, so you look at the person first and the people first. And then I think that helps you to keep up with how to communicate with with, with uh, the different age groups that, that you get to.
0: We're excited to welcome Chris Ramsey, MBE, onto today's episode of The Golders Podcast. Chris is currently Technical Director at Queen's Park Rangers. Chris has held several roles within the game, working with England national teams, several clubs including Tottenham Hotspur where he worked within their academy, and was also appointed first team coach at the club. He was named head coach of QPR in 2015 before moving into his role that he currently holds as Technical Director. Chris was also appointed a member of the Order of the British Empire in the Queen's 2019 Birthday Honours for services to football
2: and diversity in sport. Chris Ramsey, MBE, welcome to the Goldust podcast.
1: Thanks, thanks. you. Glad to be here.
2: It's a real pleasure to have you with us today. One question we ask every single guest is to us, Goldust is sprinkling particles of knowledge to help people. What does Goldust mean to you?
1: I would agree with that. I mean, gold dust for me, is, is helping to develop develop people and being aware of people's strengths and how you can actually polish those strengths to make them the best version of themselves. So I think it's quickly understanding their zone of proximal development and then trying to, to make them the best version of themselves.
0: Chris, you're a former professional footballer. So you played for, for Bristol City, Brighton, Swindon... Southend and and a couple of clubs out the country as well. If you were to look back on your playing career, what skills or experiences were most valuable in helping you grow as a person? Uh, one of the things was,
1: I started in 1978. I was in a, I was a scholar at uh, at a well, scholar, an apprentice professional, like your dad was just talking about William Morgan before. I was I was I was back in those days where the apprentices had to do the boots, paint the ground. Wash, wash the kit and stuff like that. So I look back at that not fondly at the time, but fondly now because it, it it gave you a sense of resilience that I think that a lot of the the scholars now don't have. I know it's a different era, but uh, I think I learned a lot from that. And, and during that time at Bristol City, it was literally you know a decade after England won the World Cup, and there were people like Norman Hunter and Terry Cooper and Joe Royal and people like that, so we're all big stars. As they would be, as they as, as like now, you 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 would have at these at these clubs. Bristol City was in the, in the old in the first division, which is the Premier League now. So the, the skills that I've i I learned as a youth player were very important to me, and I, and I do believe that as a youth player, you actually get coached more than when you are a first team player. Um, and so those sorts of skills of of knowing how to look after yourself, getting up early to to actually do. A day's work before you've actually started training. I think I've learned. I learned a lot from that.
2: Well, after <coughs> retiring from playing football, Chris, what inspired you to become a, a football coach, and how did that get you the start in coaching? Uh, believe it or not, I
1: had done my first coaching badge when I was twenty-one, and just as a as, as just to do it, really. Um, I failed it. But not, believe it or not, Brian Eastick was the coach then. He was my coach at uh, at Brighton. And then I went with my mates just in the summer for something to do while I I was a player at Brighton. And I didn't use my coaching qualification until I was about 28, 29. I was playing in Malta and um, the manager got sacked, and I was one of the foreign players. So I was getting more money than everybody else. So they just said, right, you're you're, going to have to take the team till somebody comes. And I ended up doing it for the best part of three years as a player manager. So it was more out of desperation um, than... than, uh, choosing to do it uh, it was actually the last thing I thought I wanted to, to do was be a coach I, I, I always thought that it would be difficult to manage a group difficult to put your ideas over but uh, desperation meant that, that I, I ended up having to take the job and, and you know I did okay at it. I mean look back now and I cringe probably at the sessions that I put on but you know needed needs must at the time you've obviously talked
0: about the desperation of that moment from there you've you've been on on quite a journey from a coaching perspective. Can you share with us your coaching journey from that moment of being told that you're now a player manager?
1: Yeah well I became a player manager and, and um uh, from that moment I, I mean to be honest with you I ended up giving the game up um and and because my legs were my legs were gone at that at that stage. It was just one of those where I felt that there was no. There, it wasn't worth playing on because I'd had a lot of injuries during my career, and, and I've got to that point where I, I decided I was going to go back to uni, um, which was another major milestone for me at, at the time. But I came back to London to England to do the prep courses that they used to do then, and I'd fly back to Malta and and play and coach. And then when I came back, I did my full my full license at um, at Lillyshaw back back in back in the day, and, and got that. That full license, but I couldn't get a job in England uh, in coaching. I've I, I done football in the community where I learned the most, actually, from football in the community. Um, at, believe it or not, at QPR. So I've gone from football in the community to being the manager here, and I did that with Brentford and Orient and Wimbledon. So after that, after doing that, I ended up being the youth development officer at Orient for three years, which was which was brilliant for me because I learned a lot. While coaching Newham Ladies football football team for three years as well at at the same time, so there was a lot of learning going on, uh, my ideas and 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 uh, how I would coach and what I could get test out. What I was going to try and stamp my identity on how I wanted to be a, how I wanted to be a coach. So from there, I, uh, I got headhunted by the FA. So I went on loads of courses. Uh, I shadowed a lot of people. I I decided to to see how I could implement what I had learned from, from my different experiences. Because being in Malta, they played, as, as because it's hot, they play a certain style of football that's different to the hustle and bustle here. So I felt that that gave me a, a, a good sort of bank of knowledge of different types of players around Europe. Um, so I went from there to from there to the FA and I coached all the England teams there. That's where I met uh, probably one of my, my biggest mentors was Dick Bate at the time so um i learned a lot of the FA of steep learning curve with uh, Howard wilkinson i was his assistant i managed to, to be one of the the tutors for the a license myself dick Bate and john McDermott actually had to be had to be assessed by fifa so that england could actually get the uefa accreditation for the new license because in the, in those days it was a full badge you had a full badge and you had to have it converted so i went so uh, fortunately for me i i, I ended up being the uh, the first black England coach, male coach, working uh, with the under-20s in the World Cup in 19, 1999. But, you know, things come to an end at the FA. I was there for three years. I've coached every team, nearly every team, apart from the 17s. And I learned a lot uh, from from different people I worked with. From there, I went to Luton as an assistant manager with Ricky Hill. Lasted three months, four months. As it was in those days, as you know, going into into League Two, I was only in my th- mid thirties, so a lot to learn there about. Uh, you know, I look back now and I think, was my man management good? Was my coaching good? How how could I evolve that? But we got got the sacked there, and from there, I uh, believe it or not, I became an agent, which was the worst job in football. I hated that job; it was a very very difficult job. It, you know, it, it, all, all you get is people saying, "What have you done for me?" and Can I get some new boots and stuff like that? So I I didn't really like that job. But I moonlighted when I was there at Barnet with uh, John Steele. And a lot of people think that me and John Steele were totally opposites as regards philosophy and how to play the game. But to learning on how to embed your philosophy was a major thing for me then. And and a lot of people think, you know, because you'd worked for the FA, you have been around the world looking at, you know, your, your teams in Europe and their philosophies and stuff like that. But believe it or not, he him and Dick Bate probably helped me to embed my philosophy of how I would like the game played more than anybody else. So from there, I ended up going to America. I used to go to America in the summers when I was in Malta, and um I coached at Coco Expo in Coco Beach. and from there i coached uh, Florida Tech. and that was just before i went I went back to uni, but moving moving years on, I was working in New Orleans and my friend, uh, Pat Dix, who's a- at uh, Orlando, told me that his dad, Alan Dix, was leaving Charleston, Charleston Battery, the USL. They were the first, one of the first teams in America to have a custom made stadium for, um, for, for soccer. And I went for the interview there, flew from New Orleans uh, there, had the interview. Within a few weeks, they told me I'd got the job. So I went back to England, got my stuff and came back came back there so I spent three seasons at Charleston Battery we became national champions I I did a lot there uh, as regards understanding about different cultures different climates as you know you fly from one part of the country to the other it can be completely different Um, and I think a lot of my grounding there about working with different people working at different times different time zones you know put me in good stead for the stuff that that I'm currently doing uh, got the sack there, as you always do as the first team coach uh, after three years, and I went to uh, Florida Premier in uh, Fort Myers. So I was, uh, that was, you know, a, another fantastic experience. You know, working down there as, as the assistant coach for the girls' program and the head coach for the the, the uh, director of football for the boys' program. Met a lot of good people there who helped me to to actually get assimilated in the way the parents are and how the whole uh, youth system works there. Um, but in the time I've, I've been coaching in America, you know, I worked at, on the ODP programme in Tuscaloosa and I've done a lot of camps all, all around America. So, you know, my bank of friendships there is, is quite quite wide. I do know quite a lot of people over there. While I was there, John McDermott, who I worked with at the FA, um, he had left the FA and he he got a job at Tottenham Hotspur as the academy manager. He phoned me up and we'd always talked about youth development and um, how we see it. And whenever I'd go back to England, he'd go scouting for some of the England teams. I'd go with him. So he phoned me up and asked me if I wanted to come back to Tottenham as his assistant in the academy. And it was about time for me to come back. You know, my my son was still in England. Went to Tottenham as John's assistant um, in the academy for five years and the assistant um, under 18s coach with Alex Inglethorpe. And I did that for five years. And uh, Tim, Tim Sherwood and Les Ferdinand came to the club and encouraged the academy to let them work with me with the development squad. Because at the time, Clive Adams had the development squad. But when Harry Rednack came in, he went to work with them and they, they happened to be at the club. Uh, they took over the development squad with all the players now that you know that have come through. Uh, but luckily, I knew those players for when they were young. I knew from when they were young, so it helped build a rapport with those players and we helped to develop them. So all through that time, that 10, nine, nine and a half, ten years that I was there, we are working with a lot of the same, the same players. And then fortunately, we, uh, we got the job with the first team and um, I became the, the, the first team coach. Les was assisting Tim and Tim was the manager. Um, the inevitable, you get the sack uh, because that's what happens to, to first team managers. And I left there. When I left there, uh, they asked me to stay. Actually, uh, Tottenham to to go back and to helping and develop the, the players. But I had a debt of loyalty to Tim and Les at that, at that time, and, and I'd been there for for uh, almost a decade. And then I it, during the, the gardening leave I had for six six months, I I did two England camps. I worked with the under seventeens, which was the only team that I would worked, worked with with John Peacock. So I'd done two camps, two camps two tournaments with him. And then um, Les asked me to come to QPR as the, as the head of player development. But within three months, Harry, Harry Redknapp had left and they asked me to be the interim manager and then eventually gave me the job as the interim manager when they were in the Premier League. You know, unfortunately for us, we were on a downward slide and I wasn't able to keep them in the Premier League. But uh, I managed them in the championship and inevitable happens. <laughs> you get the sack. So I got the sack. Uh, but I still had an affiliation for the club and uh, they, they asked me, again, could I come back as a technical director to, uh, based on the club's financial situation, they wanted to develop some players to, for, for the market or, or to be in the team. And I came back as a technical director and academy manager. And then during that time, the head of coaching left, went to Knott's Forest. So I took that job over and relinquished the academy manager's job. And then the first team manager, the first team one of the first team coaches left, and they asked me to engulf that as well. So I was fortunate then was to be working with the academy and the first team on the pitch, which it, which created that bridge for the academy uh, players to come through, and um, and it worked quite well. We've had I think twenty two or twenty three debuts since I've been here, and we've probably we've we've sold quite a few players, and we've had a, quite a few players playing the team, and I've maintained that job. For the last four or five years, Uh, and uh, most of it is is dealing with sitting with the analysts and ensuring that the manager's philosophy on the pitch is comes to fruition. So it's not it's not a case of uh, me telling the manager, "Oh, you shouldn't play him, or you should play this system or that system." They tell me what they want to happen, and 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 I try to give them the advice that they need during the game. So I still coach every day you know, either the uh, either the under-23s or the under-9s or the under-10s, whoever it, wherever it may be.
2: There's obviously a wealth of experiences and as a contribution or, a, as a, or as a consequence of those experiences in football, in 2019, you received the MBE, a member of the Order of the British Empire for services to football and diversity in sport. That must have been a proud moment for you and your family.
1: Yeah, it was, it was a proud moment because one of the things that I've always believed in, I believe in the underdog. And I, and I always think that if you believe in something and you're professional about the way you deliver your message, it's important that you say it. And, and I think also you have to use your platform. There's a lot of people that have got platforms and they don't use it. So if you're in a position to help people by using your platform, I think it's important.
0: Well, Chris, you've talked obviously vast experiences and mentioned about being at QPR for the past few years now. How do you foster a culture of continuous improvement and innovation within <laughs> the club and, and within the
1: academy? Uh, well, I think what first of all you've got to lead from the front, which is why some, why, why uh, you know I'm in the dome with all the age groups three times a week. I think it's important that they see that you believe in the thing that you're saying. And I think it's important that you execute it and be consistent in your message. Because if you don't have that consistency and that drive uh, to, to put that message over and be a model for it, I think you you can't foster excellence at any stage. So most of the time you need good disciples. Good disciples will help you uh, disseminate your your message regardless whether you're there or not. And if you haven't got them, then then you actually have to be hands-on, which you can't be everywhere. So d- d- your recruitment of your disciples are, are, is, is probably the most important thing.
2: So having good staff is <clears throat> is is hugely important and having trust in those that you work with. But in regards to you and you personally, how do you stay up to date with the latest trends and innovations in coaching and player development? And what strategies do you use to ensure your coaching remains fresh and
1: also effective? I think one thing you have to do is you have to realise that without understanding the psychosocial social of individuals, I don't think you can coach anyone. You can know a lot, but you have to affect people as people. So it's important. I mean, unfortunately, I've got 10 nieces so, of different ages So uh, and nephews and so I try to see what they're watching, what they're doing, how they're doing. How do I communicate with them? So so you look at the person first and the people first, and then I think that helps you to keep up with how to communicate with 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 uh, the different age groups that that you get to. Um, And as far as the trends of football, I think people forget that there was tactics before two thousand and twenty-three. So I think it's just about maintaining your knowledge of the different tactics and the different moves that that happen and just just bringing them up to date with uh, with how people speak most of it is the language you know you know people talk about transitions and half spaces and stuff like that those things always existed it's just the language that has changed and i think if you don't keep up with the times you can't really uh, deal with coach players you can't really you have to affect players first from a social point of view so sometimes you're better off knowing less and being a better connector than knowing more, not really being able to connect with the people.
2: Let me bolt on another question in relation to, in regards to that. How do you connect?
1: Uh, I think it's I think it's really important that you are up to date with social aspects. So understanding about people's different religions, understanding about. Um, not everybody is the same because people say treat people to say the way that you'd like to be treated but it's not that it's treat people the way that they appropriate for them because how I would like to be treated may be different to someone's cultural difference so main, the main thing is to understand keep current with politics so you don't put your foot in it and it's because sometimes we can do that uh, by not by not being aware and and also w- when you're dealing with different age groups I think uh, one of the things we always tell the coaches is find out what 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 they watch on telly, you know, their cartoons, find that you don't need to know all about it, but you need to be able to create that non-football banter. So, so you're not just talking about, are they good at shooting or are they good at, at tackling or whatever it might be? You can talk to them in, in a way that connects with them, that that makes you believe, makes them believe that you're interested in them. A lot of the times when you're dealing with academy players, they're happy when you know about their parents and about about certain things like that. So I think there's a there's a wider issue when you want to connect with with players than the actual football. So I try to know as much as I can about the individuals, players that are injured. You know, if someone if 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 an, an under 10 has to go to hospital for something, I'll try to, to find out so I can phone the parents up and say, How did he get on? You know, the his tonsils out or something like that. So I, I think academies have a greater responsibility socially than just putting the cones out and doing the sessions.
0: How do you balance the need to win games with the need to develop players and and promote
1: long-term success? It depends what you think winning is. So the only team that has to win is the first team. So that's the only team that has to win, regardless of the performance, whether it's attractive or not attractive. Only team that has to win is the first team. So it depends what your club culture is and what your club decides is winning. So if your reserve team go out and lose 4 0 but you've got the best player, technically you've won, haven't you? You know, we played a game a couple of seasons ago where we got we got sorted in slaughtered in, in, in the game, but three players, two players went out on loan and one player was sub for the first team. So for me, would I have rather won the game or would I have rather that outcome? So it really depends on what your what your club believe is is the most important. You know, do you want to win the youth cup or do you want to do you want players in the team? You have to you you have to first decide what that is. Now, listen, I know that that where you are is, is slightly more difficult because when I was at Florida Premier, the parents are paying, so they want to win. So, what we tried to do was uh, at at Florida Premier, we we tried to focus on how many scholars we could get so we would say to people like do you want to win the gator classic or do you want a full right to fit it just depends on 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 what what we believe is winning so that is that's a tricky one but as long as you know what arena you're in then obviously you can recruit for that arena
2: so what criteria do you then use to to assess the progress of young players and then how do you decide when to push them toward the first team?
1: Um, the criteria to decide, I, I, I believe the closer you get to the first team, then obviously there's a job description for every position. And then, so you look at the job description, you think, right, if, regardless, whether we call it from Bas- Basildon to Barcelona, Wherever you're, if you're playing at Basildon, you're a centre-half, you have to head it. If you're at Barcelona, you have to head it. So there's going to be things that every single person in every position does. Then obviously the philosophy of the team comes into play, and their and their uh, their personality and characteristics. That's the difference between players. These is obviously how competent are they at the basics, and how and how good are they at their strengths that that you that you've signed them for. So we look at we look at. measurement wise i think it, 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 i know the stats have come into it a little bit more so other people will do that i probably i look at their job descriptions and i and i think how competent are they at the job description that if on their worst day are they on the line which we, we would call six or seven out of ten uh, do they just do the job on their worst day and then everything above the line will depend where you, what, what team you play for how many games you play and all that all that sort of stuff so it's just about also where in my position, also understanding what the the manager in situ wants. So if he wants a forwards forwards that run on all the time, then it's down to me to coach that in, with with the with the the players and emphasise that with the players so that they can they can actually have a chance of playing in in the team. So it, it's just really who's in situ really, and and then we look at that.
0: How do you work with the, the first team staff to ensure that smooth transition for, for young players from the academy to the first team? And obviously, refer to it yourself, you work in first team football, you're likely going to get sacked. So things can change and, and who comes in, they
1: might want something completely different. Depends. Yeah, you're right. 100% right. So the club have to set a, a philosophy, don't they? They have to set a strategy. So if the club sets a strategy, then obviously the first team manager come in and should know that strategy before they come in, and then you'd hope that you could work hand in hand. One of the things I think that that I think all the first team managers knows, I wouldn't be pushing a player that I didn't think that I wouldn't pick myself. So if the managers come in and there is no club chat strategy, then obviously what they'll do is they'll they'll want money and they'll buy you they want the, the ready made article. So it's a tricky, it's a very tricky uh, political sort of landscape for me as regards trying to keep the first team players happy, but trying to also first team manager happy, but also not getting in his way either. So he feels that like I'm an obstacle, and also keeping the academy players motivated that there is a pathway. It, 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 and, and as you know, we've had uh, in this last year, we've had four, we've had four managers in this last year. They're very difficult to stay impartial is very difficult, but you have to.
2: So the challenge or the balance, I guess, Chris, from sharing your thoughts and beliefs around pushing a player that you wouldn't put in the first team if it was your in your shoes, but how do you deal with players that they don't make it to the first team? What kind of support is what provisions are in place for those that struggle
1: to cope? First and foremost, a player that I wouldn't pick. There there has been a player that's played that I wouldn't have picked so the, the first thing is first you have to give everybody the diet that it takes for them to develop individually so it, it, one of the, the the main thing is whether you like a player or whether you think a player is good or not you have to you have to give everyone the opportunity to, to to do the program that will help them so that's important first and foremost secondly the rejection part of it is something that's really really difficult and I never ever find that 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 easy in my whole time I've been been involved in releasing players I've never found it I've never found it easy putting things in in support for the players is in, important I've been fortunate to have had the experience of being released three or four times as a schoolboy been released as an apprentice and then being released as a pro so so I understand what what's happening with them and and how they feel but I think now with the education programs. I think it's important that we support them to get that their education, so that they can. They may not want to stay in football, but sometimes people stay in football because they got nothing else. They haven't got another opportunity, or they haven't got an education to go into a different, a different part of their life. So recently, our own Ruben Galaninger has has spoken with our with uh, Alex Carroll, our our, um, academy manager, and Les Les that we want to be the, the a club where Football is a pathway, but there are other pathways. So, for argument's sake, when we when when they do their education, they're not just doing a sports science or a PT, a a, a PE, B Tech. They might go and do carpentry. They might go and do electronics. They might do something that, when they stop playing, they can literally go into another job. Whereas a lot sometimes we give them these certificates where they have to then go to university. You now, people don't always want to do that. So those pathways are, 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 are very important. The last couple of years, we've had, we've had a kid go to Harvard. We've had a kid go to Swarthmore in, in America. We've had uh, people take up different careers, which, which I believe as academies and parents, I think we professionalise the kids too early. So their identity is that they're a footballer and they can only be a footballer. So I really b- believe that we need to start putting that support in earlier so if they don't make it it that the, their world doesn't the bottom doesn't fall out of their world what they need to do is say listen that was an experience i didn't quite make it i'm now going to be a lawyer or i'm now going to work in, in a shop or i'm going to be 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 something else but to be identified as a footballer so early i think is 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 the biggest problem that we have
0: with that being said, how do you support the mental and emotional well-being of, of young players within the academy?
1: Uh, well we have psychological provision we I'm not saying that we do it perfect because because I don't know if, if it's been done to you perfect yet because it's profit it's, in, it's in, in progress but we do have uh, the players have got someone who's who they can go and see but that person isn't in a, an office on their own you know with a couch. You know, there's someone who will watch training. Um, everybody at the club um, has to do a coaching badge, no matter who they are, or join in the process of doing the coaching badge so they can understand at least the language that's being, being said. So even even the psychologists, even the physios, whatever. So when we do the, the kids' uh, badge, what they do with the PFA, we encourage them to go and, and watch it so they can communicate with the players in a way that is football-related. Sometimes I think that people, uh, you have counsellors and support staff that don't actually understand the context within football when they're talking to them. So we, we think that that's, that's an important part of dealing with their mental health uh, well-being because people not understanding the context sometimes give them advice that's not relevant to, to uh, what the player's feeling or what the player's looking to get from that, from that counsellor. So we so we have that as much as we can in place. We have a referral system which um, is still in progress. But one of the things, and I'm probably going to get lambasted for this, is the confidentiality. A lot, of, obviously, most practitioners will say that confidentiality means that they can't tell you if a player's got a problem. And where there's a grey area for me is sometimes we, we, as coaches, we we injure the players. As coaches, we cause them to have mental issues because of our conduct and how we deal with the players. But if you don't know a player's got a problem, you communicate with that player in the way that you feel is is appropriate at the time. So I've I've got mixed feelings about that confidentiality. So what we've tried to put into place is a traffic light system. So red, um, amber and green. So if a problem is a red problem, say for argument's sake, is at the worst it could be. There could be six or seven Problems that we think are the worst they could be. The, the psychologist doesn't have to tell you that that's what the problem is. They just might advise you how to deal. Uh, this player's got a problem. Please can you stay off him today? Or this player is it, it needs to be off or something like that. So the confidentiality isn't breached, but you're dealing you you as a coach is dealing in a way that helps the player. So for argument's sake, you could have something that say is a, a green problem. In our eyes, but it could be a red reaction, so we have the reaction and the problem. So, for argument's sake, someone loses their phone. You might think, "Oh, that's there's nothing much in that," but that person might be a carer for their parent, so their reaction will be red. But the problem in our eyes is green. So we're trying. We, it's not perfect, but we're trying to get away a, a, around us dealing with the players in a way that doesn't make their mental health worse because. We think that they should have got tight when they didn't, or we think that they've come they've come late, and we don't know that they've got a problem, and we're now having a go at them, but they actually have a problem, um, and and, off, and we've actually suffered this in real life. So uh, when we were we were at uh, Tottenham and we were taking the team, we were playing a game against I think Man United uh, on on what day it was. It was on Sky TV. One of the, the medics let it slip that this player hadn't taken his medication, and we was like we. We couldn't believe that we didn't know that this player had this this problem. So we're putting him in the team, and it could be his worst nightmare, where we could have probably pulled him out and saved him from the feelings that he was having and played him in a different game. So, in that case, we could be actually perpetuating the problem for the player by not knowing that the player the player is on medication or has a or has a problem. Now I'm not saying that what I'm saying is perfect. I'm just saying that there's a problem out there with that. And then, and obviously I would like any medic or or any psychologist to probably offer up some sort of solution where we we, we can help the players better. Um so trying to help them is, is their mental health and stuff like that is obviously trying to find out as much as you can about that player that that they're that they're able to re- reveal and then trying to educate ourselves. So when I worked with uh, Howard in, in 1997, 98, Bill Bezik came with us with the under-18s, and he was one of the first ones that was introduced to travelling with teams. And I watched him operate, and, and I wouldn't see him much with the players. And, I, and he said to me, yeah, well, what it is is the coach has the most power. So why don't I educate the coach how to interact better with the players? And I thought that was a really good way of dealing with it. If the players want to come to see me, fantastic. But if I understand, if the coach, if I observe the coach and give the coach some tips or counsel the coach or if the coach wants some help, the coach is the one that's going to pass the message over. And you know yourself, there's does matter what anybody says, the coach has the power to hire and fire you or to drop you or to pick you. So whatever the coach says becomes more powerful than anybody else. In the building, so it's important that the coach is educated.
0: You, um, you only know what you know, hmm. and if you're not aware of, then how can you be a solution, like you said, to the problem? And that that the last example where you mentioned Bill Beazit coming along with with the England groups, he was the obviously yes to help the players, but to educate the coach on. What he saw, or maybe what he believed, could further enhance the coach's knowledge and awareness of what was going on, but in turn improve the players' experiences just based on feedback that was given. And I think that that's a really good approach in how to get the balance between the two.
1: Mm. It's it, it, and, I, and I agree, and it is difficult to get the balance because obviously, if you had if if a player goes and talks to to a psych or a counsellor obviously they want they don't they want it confidential however as coaches we're still injuring the players and we're still causing them mental problems but we're stumbling in the dark a lot of the times so some so a lot of it's unintentional and and if we've got no education and we've got no knowledge of a problem then we're going to continue to stumble in the dark, and then the psychs will keep their confidentiality, and it will be a circle. All we will we'll be doing is putting a plaster on the problem. It's education, and that
2: word keeps coming up: educating coaches, educating parents, educating players. Is there any training provided in regards to the media?
1: Yeah, I mean, we we, we try we do try our best to cover those bases. I mean, when we first started off, say with the psych, psychology, the, um Misha Jervis. Who's one of the top ones in the in in the, in the game? She uh, put a lot of stuff in there that would brought to her attention um, the psychological problems that players have with getting too much money too soon, and how how we can deal with those players. But what we what we've done is we do have life skills programs. So normally on a Friday, the players will have somebody comes in and talks to them about their finances or other, other things that, that, that need to be be spoken about. And we also uh, do allow the players to go out and do day release you know, once once in a while where they can go and work in the shop and they can understand about about being an accountant and, or about how to deal with money. The biggest problem is the money scenario. So hence the reason why what we do at our club, you, you can't earn more than a certain amount of money in the academy if you do and it's 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 livable money so it's well, i not talking about thousands it's livable money as soon as you earn more than that then you have to go into the first team pot so we so don't care how good you are if you're in the academy pot there's a ceiling on what you can earn and and we had that years ago at Tottenham for all those players and obviously as they got into the first team they earned what they earn. but we do encourage them to do other things we've got a few now doing degrees in their spare time we got a few people doing financial management courses in their in their spare time, so trying to put all those those pillars into place to to round the the, the player off, we believe is really really important. See, based on the statistics of you know zero point one two percent in one point five million uh, get contracts, so it's really important that the players are aware that of, of this. Even though we know it's their dream, but they're aware of it.
0: We've talked a lot here about poaching. We talked a lot about the players. What advice would you give to parents who have a child in a, in an academy?
1: First and foremost, they have to have an enjoyable experience. That's the first thing I would be saying to parents. So we do, we try and do a thing on managing expectations, and we only do it with the parents because we realise that the cat the players themselves they can say I'm going to be the one, but the parents are there to support the players. So, uh, so first and foremost, I'm saying it has to be enjoyable for, for the... Listen, getting beat 12-0 every week is not enjoyable. But what I'm saying is, in general, they the, the players are going to have to want to come to training. And the players, the, the parents also have to stay out of the coaching. So, they can't contradict what the coach is asking the player to do. The player will fail. So, there's for me, first and foremost, it has to be enjoyable. They have to want to come. Secondly, they have to stay out of the coaching. And they only need to give feedback if the player wants feedback because they don't know what the coach has asked the player to do. And most of all, they can't make the journey to training there and back be an imprisonment where they're just getting advice about how they should play and who, who they should pass to. And so they get a pre-match talk before the pre-match talk with the coach. And then they get a post-match talk after the post-match talk. Quite a
2: challenging task. To uh, to fulfil that's for sure.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think it's difficult for parents, especially the ones that live in vicariously. I think it's very difficult if they want it more than the, the players, and obviously your ex pros and and your failed your failed parents. If uh, they're not allowing that child to want to get in that car to come to training and spend quality time with that, use the time in the car not to just talk about football. Use the time in the in the car to connect on other things. It will relax the kid, and then you have to gauge the mood of your of your child after the game. Don't keep giving them advice.
2: Uh, lots nowadays probably rescuing the sons. All the daughters struggle. Of course, to what value do you trust that coach to look after your child's welfare? They're in hands of people that are highly experienced, particularly in your case. We've worked across different levels of the game but parents at times I guess it's a lottery win if they get a son or a child that like go into the first team so they step in the way a little bit too easily and too freely at times the voices not just when they're on the pitch but actually when they're traveling home or traveling to I'm from training as well
1: mm. well the things what they don't realize I keep saying to them he, they think they're only coaching their son well, I say to them, if you coach one player, you're coaching the team. If someone presses, someone else is going to press and someone else is going to press and someone's going to tuck round. So you've coached the whole team just by the movement that one player does. So I would say to them, would you want your son coached by another parent? And they said, well, I'm not doing that. I'm saying, well, you are. Because whatever your son does affects the whole team. I mean, one of the things about we're talking about releasing people before, you actually release the parent. You think you're just releasing the, the the kid. You're actually releasing the parent because if they've taken their son from nine years old to sixteen and they get released, the parent would have formed um, friendships over those four or five years in the canteen with with the parent with the different kids. They've been to the kids' birthday parties, uh, stayed overnight in hotels with with um, you know groups of them because they've they've gone on to tournaments and stuff like that. So sometimes it's, it's almost as traumatic for the parents because where they've seen someone three times a week for four or five years, now they're not going to see that, 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 that person. So, you know, that has to be taken into consideration as well.
0: What do you consider to be the most significant challenges facing young coaches nowadays?
1: I think there's too many boy racers in England anyway. There's too many boy racers. But that's people that think that they're mini peps I made a mistake a little while ago. I said, don't watch Arteta and, and Guardiola. Probably to expand on that is don't watch them tactically because their players are end product players. But watch how well they do the basics. Watch how well they pass the ball. Watch their movement. Watch how well they interact with each other. Young coaches, oh, we played a diamond. We played a low block. We played a high block. Before they've even coached the players out to control the ball. Uh, that before they've coached the players into the right habits. So if you're going to watch top coaches, watch what the players do and how, how capable they are in possession, how capable they are in their in their tasks that they have to do for their jobs. So I would say most young coaches stop thinking about tactics and think about how you can improve the players as individuals. That's one of the challenges that I have in my academy is looking at the, the coaches and... Trying to keep them on task for what we're trying to do. Most of them don't want to work technically with the with, with the players. They want to work tactically, and they forget that most of when you're looking at these top players like Man City versus uh, Real Madrid, look how good the players are in possession of the ball, and not in not talking about bending the ball down the line with backspin or just talking about literally just passing the ball and receiving it, checking their shoulders, playing in playing into people that can that, that can manage the ball. Uh, that's that's the advice I would give young coaches. And secondly, I would say you have to be versatile because if you want to go into the professional game or full-time football, if you haven't got an awareness of how to coach different players at different ages, you will only be able to work in one sphere. So if you think you're going to go and coach Arsenal's first team, then first of all, you've got to remember there's only 92 first team jobs. Secondly, you've got to realise that there are loads of people that want to do that. So and it depends what you want to coach and how you want to coach and what arena you want to be in. So if you want to be in the development arena, you've got to remember development comes in many guises. So losing is part of it. Losing is part of it. Uh, and, And a lot of people don't think that. They think winning the game means that the players are better. Not necessarily.
2: That's great advice as there is a variety of different types of coaches to be able to coach. The younger ones doesn't necessarily need you capable or have the capacity to then work with older players and vice versa. It comes through going through the ugly times, ugly periods of our sessions, having sufficient feedback, getting that feedback from someone that's trusted and is also very, very capable of being able to answer or provide the necessary feedback to help us on a journey. Chris, final question for you. In your position at a a coaching, what's one question you wish
1: your coach would ask you more frequently? Uh, The breakdown of technical work. So they don't ask about the breakdown. If you ask a coach now to teach someone how to clip the ball, they would only just say, oh, well done. Uh, lean, they, they wouldn't even talk about even leaning back or leaning forward or where their arms go. Do they bend their knees? I think they they need to be more aware of how we break down techniques for players. Oh, I really wish they would ask more about that. They only ever ask about tactical stuff. Well, should he tuck round? Should he do that? What are we are going to do here? He's playing in the diamond. They never ask about, right, if we want to get someone in a pivot, What should his body shape be? You know, how how should he do it? What's his turn like? They never, they never, never ask, never ask anything like that. They just put the session on and blow the whistle, and then if it's not happening, they just tell them what's not happening. I would that that's one of the things I would I I would want them to ask about the technical breakdown for the jobs that people need to do.
2: Why do you think that's the case?
1: I mean, years ago when you did your prelim.
2: (laughs) Well, you yeah, you did the old prelim, which is now well it's now the UFC license, which was the level two. And but when you were at Lillyshaw, and a, a place that I remember quite fondly, and when you were doing your full badge, and leading up to that, by the way, the prelim, which is you just alluded to, they were talking about detailing now. Why yeah. do you think the game is lacking? off because there's lots of coaches, but I'm not sure there's lots of coaching taking place. I think there's
1: lots of sessions taking place, but no detail. I don't think people know it. And I think what you have is, I think there's loads of people that, and I'm not saying you've got to have been a pro, but there's loads of people that don't even play Sunday football, that coach. So for me, I never played at the level of Tim Sherwood and Les Ferdinand, but I played the game. But there's other coaches that I know that haven't been pros, that have played non-league or played even step five, but they've been in the arena. They understand the traffic. They understand when the ball hits you on the end of the nose, what it feels like. They understand when, you know, you've had a volley and it, you've leapt back and it's gone high. There's a lot of people that don't understand that and they don't even know they can't demo. And I'm not saying you've got to be a great demoist, but what I'm saying is a lot of people that have no idea of the mechanics of of, of the te- of the technical work. So they're literally not, we can't even feel it themselves. So I think one of the reasons why people can't teach it is because they've got no empathy for how the techniques feel. And they've got no empathy for even positioning on the pitch. And like I said, you don't have had to have been a top pro. You could have been someone who played, who stopped early on in in your career but there's some people, people that have never never ever even been in the arena so i think i think that that's why it's it's difficult that's why a lot of coaches you've got a lot of ipad coaches and you've got a lot of player coaches that are, that coach by numbers and youtube coaches so what a lot of happens is a lot of coaches don't understand that you can learn just as much from a scruffy horrible session than you can from a neat and tidy tidy one that you see on youtube and sessions go on now and unless it's Immaculate. People don't think it's a good session. They don't realise there's probably not a lot of learning gone on in that session, and there's probably more learning gone. You know, we used to play Wembley. We used to play that game Wembley. We used to cross it all in, and everyone used to be heading it and all that. You probably learned a lot about blocking there. You know, a lot about the dark arts there, didn't you? You learnt about a lot about scruffy finishing. You learnt about the crossing. You learnt about heading, competing. But if so, you put that on as a session, people will think, "Well, what's this?"
2: Simplicity is the genius, really, isn't it?
1: Exactly. And the, you know, the thing is, you have more coaches, but you have more sessions and less detail. So, I don't think if I look at some some of the, some of the, the the sessions, some of them are neat and tidy. Are they a lot of unrealistic to what actually happens in the game? Not many. I'll give you an example. If you think outside the box where the D is and just in front of that, how many goals are scored there? 1% probably. Where do you see most shooting sessions? In set, shot, 30 yards. The career goal. So we're practising the career goal every day. Instead of going into the red zone and bouncing it into someone where they've got to adjust their shape and finish the scruffy goal we don't want to do that because it doesn't look nice so we'd rather practice the 30 yarder now don't get me wrong I understand when you're at a club environment where the, that's what the players want to do I think you have to keep people happy but the closer you get to, to people actually doing what they do in a game at a first team level they have to practice what actually happens so for argument's sake if you look at uh, when you're doing shooting why is a a half shooting never shoots in a game from 30 yards I mean, in, That's a, he's, he's scored one in his career or two in his career so why don't we for a centre half do a second phase shot corner comes out, he goes back in and he scores a toe poke or a glancer, that's the centre half finish but we don't do that what we do is we do inset and shot from 30 yards which he never does uh,
0: Really reverse engineering what does it look like what happens, what's real and then how can you then replicate that on a smaller scale yeah. on a Monday or a Tuesday or a whatever yeah. it is that you're in to then make it realistic for what they need exactly
1: I mean, isn't it? I did earlier in the year when Mick, Mickey Bill was here I used to take the forwards with him and we would do um, I call it respect the five yarder so it's just a basic ball across the box they just run in in the six yard box and just side foot it in <sighs> what are we doing this for? Well, how many goals are scored like that? Most basic goals, just side foot it in. How many do we miss like that? But people don't respect it because it don't look nice or it's too easy. But it's too easy, but we miss more of them easy ones. Chris, look, we
0: on behalf of my dad and I, we want to thank you for for your time today. Obviously, there's a a massive amount of knowledge and wisdom and experiences that that you've just shared with us and, and with the listeners today and we appreciate your time again. Actually, no Thanks for tuning into the Golders podcast today. If you enjoyed this episode and you haven't already subscribed, please do so. Your continued support is highly appreciated and it means so much to us knowing that the content that's being produced is providing value in people's lives. If you would like to know more or get more information from us, you can follow us on Twitter at Gold Dust Podcast, And also you can visit our website at thegolddustcoach.com. Thank you, everybody.